I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Greg Carlisle. It'll help your attitude to look for evidence of design here in the Great Concavity. Yes. Greg Carlisle, welcome to episode 40 of it. The Great Concavity. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. It's great to have <laughs> it's you. It's a huge, uh, exciting moment for me, Greg, as we were just mentioning before the technical difficulties which precede every episode of The Great Concavity, <laughs> is that uh, you and I have known each other a long time, and I would consider you a friend of mine, and yet... We have not spent a lot of time on the phone together or ever in person. It is so strange because I've I've had one phone call and now this is the most face-to-face -face time <laughs> I have had with you. So it's just wild to me that someone who is so important to my career that I've rarely wow. seen face-to-face. -face. So it's very exciting. Wow. So you guys have I a special it. relationship in, in primarily in that Matt, your publishing company, Sideshow Media, has published... Is it two of Greg's books on, on David Foster Wallace? Is that right? About to be three. About, About to, be, to three. be three. All right. Um, and, and we'll get to that. But I mean, more, <laughs> more, more than that, just like Greg has been such a part of my life going back a long ways. Um, and before even that happened, uh, in, in the early 2000s when Greg joined the Wallace L list, uh, I was super impressed by his uh, reading skills and his ability to... Um, provide literary criticism in a unique way. And we'll get mm. into that. But like Greg and I have had a lot of interaction, but like a hundred percent of it through the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so it's super awesome. Like for, to have you on the show finally. And I feel mm -hmm. bad. Like you are not, you know, episode number one, like Greg and I are, <laughs> I mean, Dave and I are feeling our way through this whole process of having, having a podcast. So. <laughs> I'm going to give you a formal introduction. Okay. Um, Greg has an MFA in acting, actually, from University of Louisville. And for Moorhead State University, which is where he's at in Kentucky, he directs plays, teaches advanced acting courses, voice and articulation, directing, and theater history. Greg is also the author of Elegant Complexity, which is, as we will talk about, a analysis and analysis of infinite jest. Mm -hmm. He's also the author of nature's nightmare, which is all about analyzing oblivion. oblivion. Right. And he has a forthcoming book on the plays of Edward Albee. All three of those books are with uh, sideshow media group press. And Greg is uh, joining us today from Kentucky. Thank you so much for joining us, Greg. Um, it's super interesting to have you on the show. Anything that you want to start out with by saying um, about your experiences of being, I think there's a lot of going to be a lot of interest in your experiences as a theater person who is also a Wallace scholar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, the impulse uh, that I, the, well, the audacity I had to try and, say that I could write a guidebook for Infinite Jazz came from you're in a, you're in a, you're in a theater program where they're telling you uh, okay uh, now go up on stage and be the color blue you know perform the color blue and you do something impossible like that and you it it, it, it kind of lets you 
they always your acting teachers ask you to do impossible things and you get up and do it and you makes you feel like well I can try mm-hmm. whatever and if I fail that's fine and I wrote, I spent about four years I, I finished Infinite Jest in uh, January of two thousand one and couldn't quit thinking about it mm-hmm. and by the and about early in two thousand three I started trying to formulate you know I, I said I wanted to spend a lot of time I knew that it I, I knew that the book had some kind of structure. I knew there was something holding it together underneath and I wanted to explore that. And so I spent a long time writing that book and it's kind of, it's sort of like a theater director in that you take each small segment of the book because the book has divided into like 192 pieces, some of them 20 pages, some of them two lines. And how does each section relate to the essence of the whole? And that's kind of what a theater director does when they're breaking Mm. down a play to make sure that each moment it contains the essence of the play as a whole. And so that that theater director mentality kind of shaped how I went through and tried to make sense of what held the book together. Hmm. But was That's one cool. of the first things that drew you to the book was the Shakespeare title, Shakespeare reference? <laughs> Honestly, my my best friend, one of my two best friends that went to Liverpool with me in that 2009 con- uh, uh, conference, he had given me a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And I'd said, oh, that Wallace guy that I just read, the depressed person in Harper's. Yeah, I want to read this. And when <laughs> I, I read the essays and was just, oh, my God, this is the greatest stuff that I've ever read. I love this so much. And then he said, okay, here's Infinite. He handed me Infinite Jest. He said, I'm never going to read this. You can have this for a while. But actually, I, I didn't take his copy at the time. I, I, I checked out a copy from my a local library, and fortunately no one was reading it, and I kept checking it out over and over. How many renewals did it take? to? I, I don't know. It took a long time. I started sometime in 2000 and finished in January 2001. But it just Wallace's just the Wallace's unique voice is what drew me to it. Mm-hmm. And it was the the theater training of you can do the impossible that led me to say, I'm just going to write this. I never dreamed it would. I didn't realize I didn't think someone would publish. I hope someone would publish it. But I went, I'm going to do this for myself. And then once it's done, I'll pursue the outlandish idea that it can be published. But fortunately, Matt is outlandish. And so it worked out. <laughs> Well, well, we, we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, I thought that the amount of work that you had put in as a reader, you know, Wallace's book demands a lot of every reader. But what, what made you sort of say, I'm going to take this as a formal response as a reader to, you know, criticize and summarize and try to organize the whole book? I just wanted to know for myself, I knew instinctively that it felt chaotic, but I knew something was holding it together, and I wanted to find out what that was. I just wanted to do it for myself. I just wanted to know. I wanted to. I mean, I went into it thinking, oh, "I'll just handle. I'll find all the answers to the questions. It just will take some time." And then you get through it and realize, "Oh, there's he structured it to have holes in it, and you're never going to know the answers." And it was an interesting process of. You know, just like you're reading the book and you you hit that last section and realize, oh, this isn't going to end. I started this (laughs) long process of thinking, I'll answer all the questions. It's like, oh, what? No, you can't answer anything. But I'll summarize what you can't answer as best I can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think that's important. And like, let's back up a little bit and say we're talking about your book mainly today, Elegant Complexity. 
Uh, I do want to talk about Oblivion a little bit, but I think there's we've had a lot of people who listen to this podcast who want to talk more about Infinite Jest, mm-hmm. and I feel like the amount of care and attention that you've given that book, um, you know, going back 15 years to the time when you wrote this most of this study or started working on this project up until now that you've become one of the experts on this topic, and so this is our chance to sort of um, dive into the details a little bit of some of the questions that we've got from other people who have listened to the show. Oh, great. Yeah, um, that's that's kind of the best way to do is field uh, a specific question because it's hard to talk about it, as you know, in general. So, mm-hmm. Well, and, and let me start out by saying the structure of, uh, you know, Elegant Complexity is a little bit different than some other guidebooks in that it's pretty similar to uh, the Bloomsday book. Yeah. And I guess I want to ask you about your experience of reading Ulysses. If you sort of used a guidebook to read Ulysses or did you take it in a class? What was your experience with that book? Well, we got, yeah, I was in a theater class and our one of our, our favorite professors, Steve Schultz, said, every day in theater classes, you have to read this book, Ulysses. You have to read it. And I'm thinking, it's, okay, it's not a play. Why are you telling us to read? So mm-hmm. me and my friends would... We, we, I started reading Ulysses, and I had, I had to stop the first time because I was too busy. But then when I went through it the second time, I used a guidebook, and the Bloomsday book was fabulous and not being terribly intrusive but being very detailed as, as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it, helped, it helped my reading of Ulysses a great deal. Well, and, and what was your impression of that book? I mean, did you just fall in love with it? Did you want to go to Dublin? Did you, what, <laughs> what, what was your sort of reaction to it? Well, I feel I, I like reading difficult uh, Ulysses and now Infinite Jest. It's made well, all I want to do is read the longest possible novels. I'm reading like Alan Moore's Jerusalem right now. <laughs> oh, are you finished right? like Mason and Dixon this yeah. summer and the Volman, some of the Volman books. But right. um, how's Jerusalem? I'm curious about it. I love it. Okay, uh, I'm a big Alan Moore fan, and I love the book. Yeah. And the thing about Jerusalem is, uh, like Infinite Jest. Okay, let me back up to Ulysses. I, I found it difficult. I needed help to mm. understand some things in the book. Like when you get to that chapter where they're in the hospital and it's the first nine paragraphs or the different forms of English through nine time periods. And I, I'm, you know, I can't figure that out without help. And I enjoyed it, but Infinite, Infinite Jest... When I hit about page 700, it was like popular fiction. I, I couldn't put mm-hmm. it down. Mm-hmm. It, it was an insight, but I couldn't. Put, I wanted to keep reading. Even with Alan Moore's Jerusalem, I mean, I love it. I, this summer, I've been trying to read a bunch of stuff while I have some time off. But I have to read a chapter at a time, put it down a little bit. I, I, I go through it, but I plowed through mm-hmm. the end of Infinite Jest because I was so interested. And I don't, to me, it's not as difficult to read Infinite Jest as it is, you know, like uh, the recognitions and, and Gravity's Rainbow and mm-hmm. Ulysses. Those, I, I, Wallace does make you do some work, but I think his work is more yeah. in the holes that you're trying to answer the questions with all the holes he's left instead of the text itself. Right. I mean, I, sometimes people are irritated that he piles up three pages of 200 details in a single paragraph or it goes <laughs> on some math tangent. But I just think that's funny that he puts mm. this crazy calculus in a novel. I just laugh. Yeah. You know, I, so, I agree. I, I just want to say that I saw a thing on Instagram the other day that really annoyed me of someone saying <laughs> they were about to dig into the like one of the hardest novels of all time is Infinite <laughs> Jest, and I was like, really? It's not. It's really not. Like that's that's incorrect reputation. Like I I could name you at least a dozen other novels that are way 
harder to parse shorter and way harder a shorter way sure. harder yeah. and like uh, you know i think that that's a great thing that that elegant complexity helps you break down like the actual book itself and shows like it's not that hard of a book and the key I, the key is that i have said that those shadowed circles he put those in there for a reason and it, yes. to me, it, as I started the process of trying to figure out what that was, it just seems organized thematically. It, and when you, I, I would go through each section of the book trying to find what's the, es- what's, what's the just phrase of text that's the essence of that one section of the book. And then take, you know, if a, if a chapter, a, a group of sections bound by that shadowed circle, mm-hmm. try to find out what they all had in common. And it seemed to fall out. That all that each of those shadowed circles lent itself to a thematic unity, and I think that's why it's mm-hmm. jumbled up chronologically. He jumps back and forth chronologically and back and forth across characters because he's organizing it thematically. And I think if if you kind of accept that, that will help some frustration of trying to follow the plot. Hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And that that shadowed circle, sometimes called a limnescate, you know, it fits in itself thematically with the ideas of annulation of with the moon subsidized and time. Yeah. A lot of circles. <laughs> it looks like a pill, it looks like a tennis ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, <laughs> it, it, but thematically, I think that that's an important thing that before your study what is it like 28 of those chapters? I mean, hadn't really been called chapters before that. Yeah. Everyone kind of said it was chaotic, but I, I looked, it's like, surely I, he put these, there's a lot of shadowed circles at the beginning and then you don't see as many of them. There's got to be a reason for that. That's so. true. Yeah. Well, and, and no one had, had really come up with a, a coherent theory of why that was, I think before elegant complexity and, um, you know, if you don't mind, talk to us a little bit about like, so you put a lot of work into it. I mean, ultimately, this ended up being like a 500 page book. <laughs> I mean, tell us about like your experience. Like, did you think there was, you know, in 2005, 2006, did you think there was a popular interest enough in this book to support a reader's guide? I wasn't sure. I mean, I, knew, I saw that um, the uh one the first guidebook had come out in two thousand three, and then another one came out in two thousand five. And each time I'd be like, "Oh man, I'm probably gonna have to quit." And then I'd <laughs> I'd read it and go, "I think what I'm doing is different enough from what Stephen Byrne is doing and from what the the Harvard writers were doing." I, I, I said, "I think this is different enough where people that are interested in those studies will could also be interested in this one." Mm. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, and you and you added a ton, you know, in addition to doing um, summaries and kind of thematic organization of every chapter, like you added a lot to the actual kind of subsections. And, you know, one of the, the best things I love about your book, Greg, is the stuff at the end, which is all of the charts of the outlines of, you know, trying to do a chronological reading of the book and you know, the, the ETA stuff and all of the, the lists of characters who are at ETA and who are at in it house. Um, can you talk about the process of just organizing that? Did you do that as you read or is it after the fact? Well, as I went along, I had to do things to help my, I was, I was tracking, I was even trying to track it like an index, which I just had to give up on because it was so huge. And I tried to do like that, uh, the Sam Potts, 
chart. I wanted yes. to do something like that. I'm like, and I had the scope of it was too big, but I, I did. I was trying to keep up with what what was Gately's life story and what's the chronology of that? What was happening between November 3rd and November 20th? I just needed to keep track of that information for myself because I was trying to put the book in chronological order as well. And as I just kept up with those things for myself, I tried to put them in a form that other readers can use. There's a There was a reviewer on Goodreads that was like, or the, it looks... It just looks like an Excel chart. I'm like, yes, a lot of this back matter started as Excel chart because it was what I was using to to keep up. And I thought if it, you know, if these are notes I'm making for myself to help me, if I can explain the charts well enough, it may help readers down the road as well. Mm-hmm. I hope to I hope the book would have one foot in helping, you know, non-academic readers and another foot in gathering a bunch of facts that might help academic you know, paper writers have a, fa- a wealth of information to help their specific studies. I hoped it would serve both purposes. Hmm. Well, I remember back when you were, after you had finished the thing, um, we had a little bit of an exchange about the idea of spoilers and yeah. that you were, you were very focused on keeping this for a book for first-time readers. That you can so read as you went along, yeah, section by section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you explain a little bit about that? Is that from Ulysses, or what was your thinking with that? I just I wanted it to be something that a reader, if someone was going to use this book, they could use it section by section if they wanted to, and I wanted to not give things away. That's why I did a, before you get the famous chart on page 223 that finally tells you the yes. the years, <laughs> I, I showed that you could have figured that out, you know, uh, several pages before then with all the clues you were given. I tried to take as much clues oh, fun. Yeah. As, you, as you could and tried to make it where someone who was reading for the first time could go section by section. It seems from the reviews I've read that more people like to not be interrupted reading Infinite Jest, and then the minute they put it down, read Elegant Complexity to see what they can glean there. So that seems to be the more popular or more common way to use the book, but it, it's meant to be able to use side by side with your reading if you wish. As you go. Hmm. Cool. Now that makes sense. And how much of that was inspired by your own reading of Ulysses? Was that the way you read Ulysses? I, I would finish it chapter of Ulysses and then read a chapter of the Bloomsday book. Of course, this, you could actually, each of the 192 sections, if you wanted to, you could literally keep both books side by side if that's what you wanted to do. I was trying to make it where it would work in any possible configuration that somebody wanted to use it. I mean, what what I thought was interesting about that, one thing that happened out of that was that you ended up um, drawing some pretty close parallels between what happened in Ulysses and what happens in Infinite Jest. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you want to speak to that? I don't know well, he, what comes to mind for you. He, uh, in that, I call it chapter 13, I'd have to give page references to you, but when, when he starts using the long headers in that yeah. in that section where there's the bricklayer and, mm-hmm. and the uh, Hal's essay on the TV hero of non-action on TV that whole there's a sequence of seven there where they have these long headings and it's just like the Aeolus chapter of Ulysses where there's the headings help tell the story so anywhere I could find a connection everybody finds a connection Madam Psychosis Madam Psychosis but mm-hmm. you know there are little uh, Ulysses is such a cornerstone of you know western literature that 
you can you know find some parallels through there. I I just tried to find any literary connect as I went through. What was the literary connection that popped in my head? A lot of connections to 1984. I was obsessed with Ham. I love Hamlet so much. I was <laughs> yeah. I played Claudius right before. Well, I finished the book, oh, yeah. played Claudius, and uh, then started in earnest on this book. And just I love Hamlet to no end. So I found a lot of Hamlet connections besides the obvious title connection (laughs) well and even the ending i mean there's molly bloom in ulysses where you know gately ends the sort of novel with this dream memories yeah and and you know molly is also in bed and there's some sort of similarities there that you drew that i don't think other people had drawn on before i thought that 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 was that was super insightful to me um but also your your perspective of being a theater person and talking about hamlet and infinite jest um you know is there any other stuff that came to mind as you were reading the book about like oh yeah this is definitely you know hamlet or shakespeare or anything that that jumped out at you brothers there's Karamazov, a lot of maybe that he, well wallace that there's an obvious reference to brothers Karamazov. i didn't mm-hmm. find as much connection there there's a couple but hamlet just seemed to be all over the place even in the uh, there's something where i even related it to uh fortinbrot that uh i can't remember what there was something about that scene where hamlet actually sees fortinbras crossing where was that but there's something about that fighting over a patch of ground was maybe i related that to the concavity i was seeing hamlet every, <laughs> everywhere there's uh, yeah. there are more references to hamlet than anything else in here but i really my favorite thing was were my I ended with what I thought my interpretation of the novel was, and it kind of went past the quote of uh, a fellow infinite jest into the later part of that quote with uh, "Get you to my lady's chamber," and it's because it, like you're facing them your mortality and you can't cover that up. And I thought a quote later in that monologue was actually even more fitting, you know, than infinite jest. And that's I concluded my book with with a quote from later in that Hamlet monologue. So that was my favorite pull from from Hamlet but they're, they're all through there mm-hmm. so well let me let me ask you about that because we've talked about in the past that you know the first couple of words of infinite jest could be read as a response to Hamlet and the first couple words of Hamlet are who's, who's there? there and I am in the here. first the yeah the first mm-hmm. couple words of infinite jest are like I am I am in here I am mm-hmm. but we know from uh, David Herring's book, previous guest, that that was actually not the original opening of Infinite Jest, that it was supposed to open with the professional conversationalist scene. Right. Um, so I, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit about, like, do you think that the final form as we know it of Infinite Jest, like, is there any value in looking at other drafts of the book? I think, you know, because Stephen Moore had, has, you can still probably find on Nick Manianis's site, The Howling Phantods, I think you can still connect to Stephen Moore's comments on the draft that he saw. And I've read those, and it, and they were very interesting, but it didn't seem to alter what I thought was. I, I didn't even had a. It, it was interesting to see where the changes were, but I, I, and maybe I didn't study it enough. Didn't see a lot of major alterations in the in the scope of the novel. Just reading through his notes on the draft that he saw. 
Well, so. and I think that's fair. I think there's a, um, a kind of misconception that the book was radically edited. And I don't think that it was. I think that there's not 500 pages of the book on the cutting room floor. Um, and I think there are fewer than that that would make a difference. And I think what people are really interested in are those holes that you identify in your study about like what, you know, there are three or four that are like, what are, what really is going on here? What's really happened? <laughs> um, you know, what happens to how, what happens to, you know, Joelle, Madam Psychosis, is she really deformed? Um, and I think that reading, if nothing else, reading the stuff in the archive is an argument for the fact that Michael Peach would have been really helped by your commentary. <laughs> uh, I think he could have really used a reader like you to just go through and be like, okay, wait a minute, Loria P., What's going on with Loria P? <laughs> <laughs> I would assume, Greg, having done this book, that you've probably talked to quite a few people who have just read Infinite Jest for the first time and have a lot of questions. Um, yeah, they, in fact, yeah. I did. You guys know I was doing the and but so podcast too with the, with some fielding some questions. So that was right. That yeah, because they've recently wild. just read it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are yeah. some of the most common things that people ask you or things that they want to talk to you about, about how they're processing the novel at the end of it for the first time? I don't, I, in the old days, the question was often, did how you take the DMZ or, or did how watch the film? That mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be a popular question anymore, but I definitely, my process through the book was how, how can I, provide the simple, like Occam's razor, the simplest answer right. or w anything I want to say, I want to try to justify with a piece of text. Now, yeah. when I was trying to answer the big questions as kind of a conclusion to the book, that kind of went, it was like, okay, um, I would try as simple as possible to put this craziness together, but it still kind of comes off as you can't really try to answer all the questions I tried to, but I kind of right. collected, I tried to co I collected the information that, Here's everything, and I'll try to assemble it together. But yeah. through the body of the book, the page by page of the book, I tried to make it where, where if I said something outlandish, I tried to give at least one, if not several, Support textual it. references. Yeah. And I don't, I, I give some justification in the book that I, I don't think there's any chance that Hal watched the video. The there is a, a chance that, there is a chance that he, uh, what took the drug mm -hmm. um because the his toothpaste tooth yeah his toothbrush yeah. and his cup is missing for several pages and we don't know where it was between mm -hmm. until he got it back and so someone could have doused it but they're not that many people it would have to be the wraith or somebody yeah to, to <laughs> douse it because there's not that many people that know there's only two other people that know the drug and the drug's gone missing and the wraith met jim's wraith made Infinite Jest for Hal. Um, right. So why, so why would he converse. put the... I don't think he would put the drug... It just... There's a possibility, but it just doesn't make sense. And my... I thought my conclusion was the simpler, less outlandish conclusion that Hal's problems stem from his... He stopped taking... He stopped using marijuana. And mm -hmm. there's been... Because there's textual... Pamulus was saying, if you stop, you're going to be the walking dead. And there's, there's <laughs> reference to these things. And... Uh, and references to where his ankle hurts or not based on the what he's taking. And I, and I think 
without right. his crutch for social connection to marijuana that helped him not feel so awkward mm-hmm. socializing or connecting with people is gone and it makes him more insular and I thought that right. seemed more of a solution than the wild solution so that yeah that that's one sense. thing you know mm-hmm. and and let me just say that I love the fact that Occam's razor describing this book gets you to about 500 pages. <laughs> I know. I know. That's I, awesome. I, I didn't it. want it. I, I did not want it to be that long. I, I was, but I felt like everything was important. I, I knew I wanted to yeah, do section totally. by section. So it was going to be lengthy because it was very important. Even if it was a two line section treated as just as important as the eschaton section. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would really try, but it just felt like everything, everything yeah. mattered. And yeah. that's why it turned it. And, you know, I handed it and went, ah, <laughs> oh, Matt will find a lot of stuff to cut. But, right, right. <laughs> but and it, low. You know, just the way I set the book up, it kind of ended up, it kind of was that way. The philosophy I had just unfortunately turned it into something that was so long. <laughs> I think I made a joke on like a very early episode of this show before. I'd really seen your book too much. I was like, oh, is that the, um, Matt mentioned your name. I was like, oh, is that the book that's like almost the length of Infinite Jest that's about yeah. Infinite Jest? <laughs> yeah. And I love the idea that this book can spawn so much written expression from through scholarship and other forms that there's, you know, so much material to be mined here that it's, it's it feels almost like there could be a, an eternal amount or like this, this source material is so rich that scholars can work on this forever you know yeah and because of the holes in the structure everyone that likes the book could sit down and write their own elegant complexity yeah right it would be there would be different takes on it because there's so much like i believe that gately is alive but i would read stuff on the internet or on the wallace l listserv that's very persuasive that he's Mm. not i still feel like you know this is my gut instinct and the and the and the facts that I've assembled in the book mm-hmm. that he is alive. I mean, just because I would fully agree with that because we get the the flash forward, the prolepsis to the graveyard scene with Hal, right, digging up and uh, Hal himself's in, grave. Hal in the beginning of the book says that he meets Gately, and I take that yeah. to be true. So, mm-hmm. yeah. What is some of the evidence you've seen online about people saying that Gately's dead? Because I find that curious. I, well, like that would never occur to me from what I've. Well, it because at the end of the book, something very bad has gone wrong. They say an amber light has gone off. He feels mm-hmm. this thing inside of him, which is the intubation tube being ripped out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And that, so something very dangerous and very bad is going down. And without mm-hmm. the first section that literally how references Gately, it, it'd be a lot less, pers- it would be a lot more, I wouldn't know how to right. characterize it. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I think that's why people believe that he's dead because of the horrendous right. thing that's going on at the end of the novel. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Well, and one, one thing I love about your um, analysis is really that it's straightforward and that you're looking at textual evidence and you're not looking at a lot of extra textual stuff to make that call. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I want to ask if like with the way that you wrote the book and, and compiled your summaries and criticism, was it sort of like as you're reading as a first time reader and that's what someone else would get on their first time? Yeah, I, t- I was very much trying to 
make it something that first-time readers could use. Because what I did is I kept, for 300 pages, I kept constantly flipping back to keep it all in my head. And then I gave up. Went, okay, I'm just going to enjoy this, and I'll go back <laughs> and figure it out. But, you know, it's so complex, it takes a while to figure out. Yeah. But so yeah, how many so rereads have you done, like in the process of writing the book? How many times? Well, it's weird, because I did the first reading and couldn't quit thinking about it. But then I, I spent four years writing the book, mm-hmm. and I would go, I would go over and over and over and over and over the section trying to summarize it and pull out things that connected to the various themes and and notes about what I knew was coming up. So it was that one four-year read was like a multiple reading at once. Sure, yeah, because you're reading the same section like five times or something. So it's I didn't, you know, then read it again. I poured over it page by page, you know, and and tried to make notes on it as for four years. Yeah. (laughs) So... (laughs) Now, as you were writing this, was this something that was sort of connected to an institution at the time, like that you were, you know... It, well, it's always good if you're a professor to have a, a publication, sure. and, and that was in my mind, but I knew I couldn't worry about that. I had to just get it done and mm-hmm. then worry about that, and so yeah. that's what I, you know, I started. As I finished the first draft in 2006, that's when I was looking for a, a way to, to publish it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I got to say the market was different at that time and that I, I knew there was a huge group of people out there who would buy anything um, like this that was, you know, about the details of Infinite Jest, but that had not really caught up with the publishing scene yet. And it's sad to say, but I don't think that really changed until after Wallace died. I mean, mm-hmm. what's your take on that, Greg? Do you think, I mean, you saw this, you were writing this before when Wallace was still writing and publishing excerpts from what, you know, we later found out to be the Pale King. Yeah. But, but you saw things change after 2008. Oh, yeah. Oh, a huge, because now I can't keep up with reading. You know, I can't, used mm-hmm. to, anything that came across, you know, we found out about, let's read that. And now it, you just can't read everything. Yeah. But my take is more, I, I just don't, most people, you're kind of, if you're writing in academia, you're, you are required to relate what you're reading to, um, how does this relate to the seminal French philosophers of 1968? Or how, how is, does this relate to the things where, you know, gender issues and these things that are what, what academia is focused on? And I was theory, just, theory stuff, I was just like, I'm trying to break this thing down like a theater director. So it doesn't, this and Oblivion and the Albie book, it doesn't look like your standard, we're going to relate this to this idea of of uh, philosophy or this particular academic issue. So mm-hmm. in addition to its length, its style was not what you're, what generally gets you published in academia. So that's a, another reason mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thankful to Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it's more well, of a, it's more for like I mean, the lay reader or something. Yeah. In a way, yeah. Well, and but I hoped academics could like it get I was it's gathering stuff. It's like if you want yes. to write about this particular theme in Infinite Jest, I tried to tag each section so you could pour through this and I'm going to not overlook any instance of this theme that I'm writing about for my <laughs> paper for this journal. I'd hoped it would be used there as well. It seems to be more uh more a general re- academics appreciate mm-hmm. it, but the, the general reader is the people that usually comment on it more is yeah and are grateful for time uh, and and i want to go back to that moment in time because whenever 
you know, I first met Greg in the early 2000s on the Wallace L list is that you have to put yourself in that frame of mind is that there were a lot of smart people who were interested in this book yeah and they didn't they didn't have anyone else to talk to about it yeah and, <laughs> and there was there lots was, of activity i mean and everyone had theory there was all kinds of summaries of here's what i think it was fantastic it was just such a joy to discover that in 2003 and that that all those people having that discussion kept me going i mean it's <laughs> at some point i should have said this this is taking me forever. This is going to be 500 pages. What the hell am I doing? But the fact that, like Matt said, there were people talking and interested and seemed to be on the same wavelength that I was, helped. I put that in like the the acknowledgments of the book, the daily, you know, reinforcement from being on that list. Sir, you kept my motivation strong through that time period. Well, and we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have any other really channel for this kind of discussion. Um, and it's almost hard to imagine, like, in the early, uh, in 2003, like, Google was not super dominant the way that it is yeah. now. And so, like, for people finding the book, finding this community on an email list was super important. And like Greg says, there was discussion about it all the time. And there were always people wanting to reread the book and go through these details. And uh, Greg was one of those people who was always willing to engage with, you know, every sort of detailed question. I mean, mm. did you ever get tired of that, Greg? No, was, <laughs> I was I was writing the book, and this it's always happened. I always feel like I'm trying to self promote when I post on the list because someone <laughs> asks a question, and my best answer to the question. I articulated it in the book. If I just say it off the top of my head, it's not going to sound nearly as good as the stuff that I carefully poured so just over. Copy paste, and I just copy. I constantly <laughs> copying good. stuff. And but even before I published it, even two thousand three, two thousand six, if there was a question, I would go cut from my manuscript <laughs> and like throw it up there because I I had written about it, and it was much better articulated there than me just making it up again off the top of my head yeah save yourself the work too in those days you know i i don't know about you but i was about like 1.5 you know reads through the book and so i relied on your decisions or your discussions of stuff to send me back to the text and i remember one particular thing i don't want to go through everything in the book but there was one particular thing where you kind of offhandedly said something about um, Madame Psychosis being so beautiful, she was deformed. And I was like, you know, I, that, that actually is what I think. And, I, you know, there, when you first read the book, there's a lot of back and forth. Like, is she beautiful? Is she deformed? Why does she have the veil? And then reading your analysis of it, I was like, it's pretty straightforward. She's so beautiful, she's deformed. And I, was, I read that in your, your text, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go with what Greg says. That's correct. <laughs> and it, well, um, textually, it, it you know she is beautiful, and then clearly the acid, you know, they she calls Orin Dodger of flung acid extraordinaire, <laughs> and it, clearly she's hit. And then I think the attention there's something about that where the intention increases, and then that's when she dons the veil is after she's been deformed. And you can you can just see this, and there's an element of vulnerability to that kind of facial scarring that your heart goes out and in yes. a sense some kind of love goes think about that you know on the internet the the girl that has had the burned face and has and is telling those stories about how people made fun of her that that thing on the internet have you seen that keeps cropping up 
and there's something about the beauty of that uh, uh, the vulnerability of the deformity ratchets up the beauty in a sense uh, well I, I feel like it was some of it was your authority on it that have, having read the book uh, so thoroughly that I was willing to to like kind of stop the debate and just <laughs> defer to Appeal you to on authority, it. Yeah. Well, I try to yeah. I try to be as persuasive. I that's another reason the book's five hundred pages. I tried to throw as much text to support everything I said as I could. Or this is I was trying to make the most persuasive case that I could, but it you know you can still find pretty persuasive cases that disagree. As well, anybody that can cite some text, you know, you've got that hole that kind of right. keeps things open. So yeah, yeah. So about what twelve, ten years later of your book being out, what 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 comments or what sort of theories or angles have you taken that you found to be the most controversial that people have uh, wanted to talk about with you in terms of um, the ways that you've interpreted certain sections? I don't. People don't really talked to me about, they, they did yesterday yeah. <laughs> you know colleen did yesterday but and there's there's a little bit of overlap here i can't help because we're talking about the same topic but mm-hmm. um i i don't really there's not really now that there's not as much traffic as in the listserv there's there's not as many people to talk to about it but when mm-hmm. when something would come up on the listserv i would try to post what i thought about it um a big one is i I don't know if we want to get into this, but that everyone, a lot of people hate the, the Clinette narrated section. And I get that it's, it's way too audacious for a white male to Mm. write in that dialect. And I, as a white male sitting here, justifying it uh, is like, so we write that off. But I do think the reason that he did that was increased empathy. Like in the whole book, he uses that, he uses third-person narration, but it's so close. I call it the narrator for Gately or the narrator for Joel or the mm. narrator for Steve because the third-person narrator is so uh, articulate. It seems like the, the third-person narrator is inside the head. It might yes. as well be first-person. So right. then yeah. two times in the book, Wallace, who uses this other than he has Hal do some first-person narration. That makes sense as a major protagonist. But then two, there are only two sections where he goes out of third person into first, and it's in voices that I think Wallace didn't really feel authentic getting inside their head like he did the other. And he tried to – I think that's not like audacious. I mean, it is white male privilege. Of course it is, but it, mm-hmm. that's true. But it's also true that I think he was trying to create more empathy for uh, Clinette. And, and Wardine and Reginald's situation mm. by going out of the standard. I'm going to take a special case of going out of the third person narrative because that will be what helps the empathy of this section that I'm trying to report. He apparently fiercely mm. told Peach that he wanted to keep that in as well. So that, again, that's can only be seen as a white male apology for that. For that thing, sure. but that's that's what I think it is. I mean, I think both things hmm. can be true. I, I I think that's interesting, and mm-hmm. my own take on that is that 
it's just outdated and I actually don't think that it adds a lot to the plot. Um, you know, when he originally wrote that, you know, I, I didn't know this backstory. And now that I understand more about that, he wrote that as sort of a voice exercise for his MFA and just sort of pasted it in. Um, because it fit his theme. It fit his theme of the fatal beauty, that section yeah. that's in there with the, with the, the uh, Bruce Green and the attache. I mean, that's... that's yeah, so. I, I, I see that. And, and the original title of that section was Las Meninas, which is the Velasquez painting. Yeah, and yeah. I, and that makes a little more sense in that he's actually trying to write about the little people, you know, the people that were not the white males. And he was trying to step out of his comfort zone even in 1985 and 1986 when he originally wrote this section, it's one of the first sections he ever wrote. Um, and I think that he wanted to write about someone who wouldn't normally be written about. Yeah. And I think thematically that, that worked for whenever he wanted to bolt that on. And he was living in Boston later, you know, he wrote that when he was living in Arizona and then moved back to Boston. And I think he sort of realized like, you can't just write all about privileged white dudes. Maybe, um, but his, I don't know that it's super successful. Um, I, and I think there are people in this day and age who read that and are turned off. I mean, are, do you, do you see that Greg? I think, I do think people are turned off by that and that it can make them say, I don't want to read the whole book, which I mean, you can't really fight that response. It is, you know, a choice that's kind of is awkward. Uh, and you know all you can do is uh, say yes, you're you're right, but I also feel like it was there for empathy. He could have taken it out. His editor asked him to take it out. He felt it was important, and that's you know. Although two things are true at the same time, it's an awkward thing that is a turnoff to a lot of readers, especially now, much later. And yeah. uh, oh, there would have been a turnoff in 1996 too, as well. I mean, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff stopped. What do you think, Dave? Uh, well, yeah, I I think it it would be very hard to see a book get published in 2018 that had sections like that in it. I, I think there, I think that it could be very, very well insensitive. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. It's hard though. I know. Right. Cause like, like as, as you're saying, Greg, like this, is a, this is a deeply sort of creative exercise in, in assuming the voices of people that are, have a very different background and experience from you. And maybe there's some humanity to that, but also maybe there's a very conversely different position about power and, you know, structural issues in society to do with race. And uh, it's, I think it's very complicated and hard to talk, to, to look at those now. And um, I like the fact that there are a lot of Wallace scholars who are tackling that in very serious ways right now. Um, That's not the area that I worked on in my master's thesis about the book specifically but i love going to talks about uh class gender race ethnicity and things like that that are coming up at the conferences in the last couple years so i i appreciate that that's a you know burgeoning field and i hope to see that continue because a lot of people have thought way more seriously about it and in more insightful ways than i have so yeah and i thought and i love reading claire hayes brady's book that i Mm -hmm. that that was easy to read. You know, a lot of academic texts can be 
harder to read. And I, I think both Claire's book and David Herring's book were they they're in that land of of uh, academic writing. They can get published, but it's still for me a lot easier to read than most articles. I don't, but without losing any of its you know d- complexity, mm-hmm. which I enjoy. And I and yeah. I I just went on this tangent because we were what what do you talk to people about? And I really don't. I mean, I see things come up on the Wallace list that people are, and I'll try to throw some justification out of my book on there. And that's really kind of how it goes. That's why I'm like I'm happy to field questions from you guys because I'm like, yay, okay, let's yeah, let's, I don't really get to talk about it that much. Well, I think that's interesting too. Also, from a perspective of like, what should an MFA fiction writing program be teaching? And or try to encourage or discourage because I think Wallace clearly wrote that section and a lot of what was in his MFA thesis as like voice exercises where like in 1985 and 1986 a lot of stuff that was getting published was like how sort of operatic can you write Mm. and how different you know can you embody everything that can ever exist (laughs) and you know that was different than like just writing you know Raymond Carver short stories that were popular in the New Yorker three or four years before that were all about like how drunk can you get and write about it poetically? (laughs) (laughs) I'm dead serious. And that, that was the aesthetic was like how spare and like edited down can you be? And so in the mid eighties, there was this reaction where it was like, no, how sort of, you know, loud can you be and how sort of embracing can you be? But no one would teach that now. And what's popular now is very much memoirish or like auto fiction and like, you know, you write your own experience that's thinly veiled. Mm -hmm. And And see, I I don't know if it's good or bad. I think Infinite Jest, what what gets me about people not liking it, there is so much empathy. It's like I felt like I was feeling for the other person constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like now it may take three pages of erudite detail that's hilarious in its over-the-top listing of details, but there's empathy in there. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally hear that. So, like, if, there, if we have issues that, okay, these sections are appropriative, sure, maybe that's true. But, like, if you, lo- if you take the work uh, as a whole and you look at the heart of the novel, I think there's so much humanity in the book that to say that Wallace is, um, you know, committing certain sins throughout, maybe that's true. But I think like on the whole, he's trying, he's doing something very profound about the human experience that is entirely full of empathy. So look, look how lonely and desperate we all are. And it's very sad and it's very funny. And the only way to, you know, is to converse through that instead of isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I I'm think fine. I think throwing like the whole book out with the bathwater is, is like missing a, a really valuable and profound thing, you know. Um people saying that they would refuse to read the book based on some of those issues. Like while I absolutely respect that, I think it's like I would feel sad that the person was missing out on some really big important life stuff too. Yeah. Thematically that that is the reason that I find the book one of the reasons that I find the book so compelling and why I you know, recommend it to people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's starting to feel almost 
um, not embarrassing to do that, but it's it's become this thing, you know, in the last year or two with, with a lot of these publications that we're seeing where it's like, do you really want to be associated with this book? And it, we're at a weird kind of place, I think, in, in being fans of Wallace's writing where it's becoming increasingly uh, more castigated in, in media or in, in some of these outlets. I don't know. Maybe that's the swings of literature, you know, with some time, yeah, exactly. like 20 years down the road there or 50 years down the road, you know, you rediscover something that's such a unique voice that people will fall in love with again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's enough in infinite jest alone. And I think this is something that, you know, David Foster Wallace, the human being struggled with is that if you write something like this that he put a lot of work into not for a particular reader but for the work itself and that if you put that much work into something and it pays off and there is some appreciation of it granted it never won the national book award it never won any awards but it it gained a following if you get something that 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 that's the end result Mm -hmm. um i think that that's enough to propel you into like long-term popularity or fame or whatever you want, like whatever you're seeking is in terms of it. I don't think he was seeking any of that, but I think that that's, that's enough to me. Like he didn't need to write 10 other novels, like to try to justify his worldview. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like it's so comprehensive in, in what it's in its portrayal of the human experience that he's, he's yes. said everything he needs to in that book almost. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I think it's enough. Obviously he had more to say, but yeah. But there's never, I always go back to how, because Oblivion, because I studied Oblivion too, and I think that's the example of his best, tightest, most efficient writing, but I'm always mm. going to love Infinite Jest the most for the very looseness, and I don't have to be like this perfect structured writer now that I'm famous. There's, there's a looseness about it that makes me love it even more than Oblivion, even though I would say that Oblivion is is more mature writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for so. sure. Um, yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because I, I thought when Oblivion came out that it was, you know, like most of his story collections, just collecting whatever came along. Um you know, that he had done X number of years of publishing stories and it was time to do another collection until I read the actual title story, Oblivion, which I first read, uh, yeah, I don't know, 2002. And I thought that that story blew me away. And, you know, he put um, Mr. Squishy is the first story in the book, which I feel like is kind of off-putting and super complex and kind of show-offy as the first story in the book. And, you know, I wanted to get your take on that, Greg. Like, how approachable is that after Infinite Jest is Wallace's fiction? I, um, I think page by page, Infinite Jest is, more easy, is easier and more fun to read, but the short stories are shorter. <laughs> so I, was, <laughs> I thought... It would, you know, Oblivion might be the way it, well, really the essays are the way into Wallace, I would think. There's a big debate about that too. But if you, they are easier to process because they're not a thousand page novel. But um, 
I don't, okay, but like so, denser and harder, more philosophical. Yeah, very. I found a very just a fi- almost poetry level, like almost like a the density of mm-hmm. of what's in each line is because yeah. he'd ramble on a while and like you know like Shakespeare said, so I'll ramble on a while and get to my point, but but also like Shakespeare that every single word has meaning, you know, and for for oblivion, yeah, there's just an efficiency. There's like every word seems to be rife with meaning. There, it's very yeah. tight. Yeah. Uh, well, and there seems to be still a surprising funny. like <laughs> like lack of criticism about um the some of the other stories in Oblivion. I mean, yeah, I think I, the most the most critically acclaimed story in there is is Good Old Neon. Mm-hmm. But I think the stories Oblivion and the Suffering Channel have have not gotten their due. Um I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, they just I thought this book would be People would talk about it like you know, Joyce's uh, Dubliners or something. I thought it was this landmark short story collection, you know, that people would talk about. And um, it, I, I just, I just think there's so much richness there, but it just seems undiscovered outside the more, you know, lots of people that aren't even Wallace fans will try to read Infinite Jest, but no one really picks up Oblivion as, as far as I know. I maybe you know. It, 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 to me, the person whose voice is the closest, or who, who the effect on me is the closest, is George Saunders, and his, mm. you know, he's like three books of stories, which are just wonderful to read. I, I would yeah. think, you know, hey, if you like George Saunders, you should try Oblivion. You should try the. I mean, it's, I don't know, I, I, just, I don't know why Oblivion is not more widely read. Hmm. Yeah. And I really love your take on on um, some of those stories in particular. And I have a sort of pet theory that as writers develop, they get um, slightly more interested in the supernatural, hmm. um, and especially in like dreams. And you see this with a lot of writers. I mean, you could you could throw in Saunders there. You could throw in Borges. Um, but talking about uh, Wallace the story of living itself, which is set in sort of a sleep study world. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, that has a lot to do with a sort of popular fictional movement around brain science and, um, you know, what is happening with, uh, the consciousness while we we're able to study it. I mean, how did you approach that story? I was just, I, when I read the stories, I thought what connected it was all this, that the figures that I did with the nested, I think there's nested narrative, layered narratives here. And so there's so much layer there because of the dream. And I believe there's kind of a switch. Well, there is a switch at the end. And I try to articulate what that is. Um, to me, it was more not so much the dreamscape as this nested narrative. And the dream world uh, was a great example of of a story that that was kind of being told on several levels or it had many layers to it. But I thought all the stories in that book had that's again, I I found those nested concentric circles were a great way to kind of visualize and unify the stories in that book. Do you think he used those nested narratives as a sort of crutch or was it something additive? Well, this time, because he did the nested narratives, but he there were hardly any footnotes uh, in Oblivion. There's almost there's probably fewer footnotes or endnotes 
in Oblivion than in any other Wallace book. Yeah, so he right. so he was trying to instead of putting it you know out it, he worked it into the the body of the story. And, and I think that's true for uh, the Pale King as well, which I think he was working on partly concurrently with the stories that were in Oblivion. Um, but what about the Suffering Channel? I mean, I feel like that 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 feels more and more relevant. You know, it was written probably 2002 2003 and now you know we have this sort of entertainment culture that he was still focused on from the 90s up to now how do you think that that you know relates to the kind of broader themes he was trying to broach in that story uh i think i should have brought my oblivion book to look back through there um no just memorize it all yeah (laughs) um the that situation of of human loneliness no like i fantasize about being able to talk to the celebrity um we'll we'll turn any we're gonna we want to make this person who defecates art a celebrity but then we want to make fun of that at the same time we're we're lonely and it'll turn us bitter like comment section on the internet or something so does that just Again, the the loneliness of the people in that story. Uh, the uh, one of the uh, laurels at the dinner table bursts out with. I felt tender toward this poop, like it was my baby, and everyone's freaked out <laughs> by how how awkward that is. But it's this like this moment of insane vulnerability of this isolated thing that. And the the big thing, and this this, I was determined not to put any Wallace quotes in my Albie book, but I couldn't help myself. There were a couple places that I had to mention Wallace because Wallace is always in my head. But that thing about the the keyhole in the Oblivion story about no one, everyone only just sees through a keyhole. You can't ever really connect with anyone else because they can only see into the keyhole of who you are. Everything you are, you can't communicate, and that's. That was big in the Aubie book that I'm doing, this gap between you know your desire or need to be understood by another person, but it's a gap that can't be bridged. And that kind of intensity of that um, is, is probably even more evident in Oblivion. I mean, it's in Infinite Jest, but it, I mean, you can see it better in Oblivion. And that, you know, our society is just getting worse and worse, you know, with our, our political hardness and extremism you know we're all heading toward the end of the spectrum or at least media um, i guess we're not really but media is leading us toward that and there's just more isolation and i won't talk to you face to face i'll just scream at you on comments on the internet and so there's a again that theme of loneliness and there's a gap between a a solitary individual person understanding another solitary individual individual person and the like um, you have to bridge that gap. It's something Claire Haynes Brady said some things about that in her book that that I pulled for the conclusion of my Albie book uh, because that's a concern of Albie's too is the, the people not understanding each other across his career. And um, I think that well, is the th- that's the thing that's in Oblivion that that kind of relates to Infinite Jest. I do remember Greg though uh, of you and I having some back and forth about how 
you know, if Wallace proposes this is the trap that we're in mentally and infinite jest, then is he going to propose a way out yeah. in, obliv- in oblivion? Yeah. <laughs> is there going to be some kind of yeah. salvation? The answer in, is no. I think. Yeah, I, I was trying to, as a as a running narrative through the oblivion book, is, well, infinite jest kind of diagnosed it, you know, and oblivion you know, had some better case studies and and Pale King might offer a solution, but and there were a couple of moments where it seemed like with Shane Drinian listening closely enough to Meredith Rand that he levitated, mm. and there mm. seemed to be. So I think his slow going continued look at that, and and I think there's as he went, there's more of a chance of finding a solution in Oblivion. Well, there's more of a chance of finding a solution in the Pale King. Um, I I think he progressively. Uh, kind of maybe uh, gave a possibility. But the, the thing is, and I think this is, if I'm not misquoting Claire Hayes Brady, is you you aren't going to bridge the gap. So recognize that, and that's what keeps the conversation open because it is not going to be concluded. And, oh, I wrapped that up. I understand you now, Matt. I understand you now, Dave. I can wrap that mm-hmm. bow and get on. No, I'm, we're going to have to keep talking. And that's what I think the holes in Infinite Jest do. To, it keeps you talking. And, and you have to acknowledge that you're never going to cross that gap and just the, keep the conversation going. And you can have more respect for people if you recognize that things won't be wrapped up in a bow. And that's why I think, you know, Oblivion didn't have much more hope than Infinite Jest. A little bit more hope, but not much. And, the, and then there were a couple of sections where you felt like there was some hope in the Pale King. So things were kind of progressing. But these things progressed slowly because of that, and that gap between our ability to understand each other. Well, and that was sort of his larger fictional goal in general. And when he's talking about, you know, when you're writing something, what is behind the art's heart's purpose is that are you trying to leap over that wall of self? And, you know, I guess if you even go back into the mid 80s when you're talking about that Clinette and Wardine B. Cry, even then he was talking about trying to get past the self and relate to another human being. And I, I, however successful that is, I think that that's up for debate. Um, and where that, you know, as achieved, I don't know. I think for me, it's more personal thing about where myself is versus the self that he's trying to reach. I mean, does that, does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, do, he can't. Do I mean, he, his... he can't ever cross the gap. But it's like, let me present this to you and leave. Instead of wrapping the plot up, you know, I'm going to leave all these holes in this book so that we can keep talking about it. And even on in Oblivion and Pel, well, Pel King unfinished, but even with Oblivion that was tightly finished, there are still things that we need to talk about to figure out. And through talking about what's going, well, you're talking about just Wallace to the actual reader. Uh, yeah, there's no way for that. Just like a face-to-face communication, you know, you're not going to solve. There's always this gap. So he's just doing, you know, I think anyone who writes is going to have to do the best they can to try to put something down that's clear and that's interesting and that keeps people wanting to engage with the, the questions that you've raised. I mean, how did you feel, Dave? Do you <laughs> feel like there was an emp- empathy was totally achieved and solved? Um. I mean, I think this raises an interesting question for me of like, if you look at Wallace's body of work from start to finish and assess like 
the lightness or darkness of his worldview. Um, I'm very, I'm very curious about and fascinated about the ways that conversation could go. I think that Infinite Jest is like a deeply salvific and soteriological novel. And that's kind of the core of my master's thesis. I think there are moments of that, like you said, Greg, in The Pale King as well. There, There is some um, kind of redemptive hope in it. Obviously, it's unfinished, so we didn't really know how far that would go or not. Um, Oblivion, to me, seems like his bleakest work, for sure. But on the other hand, I haven't read... It's probably been like nine or ten years since the last time I read Oblivion, so I'd have to pick that up again and you know relook at it in light of... Uh, what I've you know studied and read in that time, but um, yeah, I think in in both books and even in Pale King too, it part, he's presenting these lo- lonely lives, mm-hmm. and the more you can have empathy for that, like I have more, I have a lot more empathy. You, uh, we may have had a, a stereotype about a drug user or something, but now after reading Infinite Jest, there's no mm-hmm. way you can look at someone who's an addict without some kind of compassion because you've read all those harrowing stories and you've put yourself in their place so that right there if any book if a book can can help you examine you know prejudices that's mm-hmm. that's a good thing absolutely yeah mm-hmm. i guess we don't get as many extreme characters in the pale king who come from challenging circumstances and backgrounds in the same way as we do throughout Infinite Jest, right? Like, here's a bunch of sort of middle class, upper middle class tax adjust insurance adjusters who have a boring job, which is a form of loneliness, obviously. But, yeah. um, I mean, the idea that no human is in any way able to escape solipsism and internal loneliness is like this amazing connecting thread of humanity throughout Wallace's work, right? Yeah, and it's... It's nice to see that Drenian is, you know, is able to put that focus out on someone. I mean, it's kind of trying to model. It takes a lot of work, a lot of selflessness, mm. so much focus that you levitate. It's therefore <laughs> nearly impossible. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we should do a whole thing on the Pale King. <laughs> Um, but let's go back to Infinite Jest for a second. And then I want to... Um, I don't know, wrap up as much as we can with that stuff. Cause I feel like we've glossed over a thousand seventy nine pages. <laughs> um, uh, let's go back to Hal. so as I mentioned that it was supposed to open with Hal and the professional conversationalist mm-hmm. scene and it doesn't, um, can Greg, can you sort of like, Give us a breakdown of what's going on in the first seventeen pages of Infinite Jest. Well, I think he, just off the top of your well, head. he would have most of the time when you have a narr- the general narrative thing is I start in the present and now let me go back and tell you a story. I mean, so that that's more standard with what what these narratives are going to be. You start in the present and then the rest of the story happens. So it kind of makes sense that he would put that there. But in the first scene, we are how seems like a monster to the people he's talking to when he finally speaks. But I was always struck by the fact that he's incredibly articulate to us, the reader. So as long as we're like inside his head with him, we, we have no trouble understanding him. And he still, uh, he can play tennis just as well or even better than before 
this strange thing happen to him because the 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 I, his training at at ETA has has got his body so conditioned that when he does retreat to his head that body can go automatic and he can still play great tennis even though he can't communicate with other human beings because mm. he can't get outside of his head. Uh, he can compete with us because we're communicating with him in his head, but he can't communicate with the people who are auditioning for the, the college program because they're right there face-to-face with it. I, I'll buy that. Um, <laughs> that so <laughs> so like, uh, I'll buy that if it's cheap. I'll buy that. <laughs> such a, such uh, a no, curmudgeon, no. Matt Booker. No, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like no. I'm just I'm just hard to persuade in general, but I'm I'm open to persuasion, um, and and actually having Greg on the line is super valuable because he can give us all kinds of other recommendations of where these kinds of ideas appear in, you know, in theater history, and I know nothing about that. Yeah, so me like, too. Tell us, tell us something, man. Well, tell even, us, Greg, well, like the what was what's the one? Is it is it Taming of the Shrew? The most people cut that opening thing where this guy, this drunk guy, has a dream, and then the whole story comes out of that. Most people cut that, but it and it never goes back to it. I mean, is that, am I do I have the right play? I'm pretty sure I have the right play. It's Taming of the Shrew. The Christopher right, I'm gonna go read it Christopher Fry Christopher. Sl- There's the opening bit where the guy like has a dream. Of the whole story, and they never go back to it. It's just the opening scene, and then you're done. I mean, a direct, I think the production that I did, um, I think the director had you know the sleepy guy like walk back on after the last scene or something that's not in the text to kind of make it you know more palatable to 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 our you know 2018 taste or to whatever I did to 2000 taste when I did that play. But yeah, it, it's there. It's happened before. <laughs> so talk to talk to us a little bit about. Now I'm going to switch gears totally now and just say I'm satisfied with this. Um, talk to us a little bit about your interest in Edward Albee. Well, I've I've had a lifelong interest. I mean, in undergrad when I was still. Uh, this is why I laughed a lot of the Wallace's math stuff in Infinite Jest. I my my undergraduate degrees in electrical engineering. It was like the worst engineering oh, yeah. on the planet. Um, <laughs> but then, uh, being raised in the deep south, I didn't realize you could have a career in there. I mean, I did intellectually, but I didn't realize I could do it. And uh, uh, I was at my engineering job that I hated, learning lines secretly hiding my script under my desk as my boss would walk by. And, you know, I was talking to my <laughs> then fiance, now wife about, um, and she just said, well, why don't you go back to school in theater? It's like, oh, oh my God. It was like this revelation that I, I can actually do, do that. that. Yeah. Yeah. But, and now I've forgotten the question because I'm rambling like a pedantic professor. Well, just, just <laughs> I mean, I'll be in general. Like, oh yeah. I don't so I'll be, like, um, so when I was first, I was an engineer at back at Mississippi state and, um, engineering student. And, I started getting interested in, in theater. A friend of mine was in theater, and I started going and auditioning. And I took the acting class, and from from literally 1987 on, when I first did a scene from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, um, I, and then and then shortly after that, a student directed Albie's American Dream, and I've loved Albie since then. I I read his all of his plays for fun, probably in the 90s, and then when I started getting another book idea. I started analyzing new plays because I wanted to write a book like Elegant Complexity that was related to Albie. 
Um, hmm. And then I, I was doing research on that and then to put that aside to do the Oblivion book and then came back to it with a vengeance. And now we, we have that. So the, and the Albie, it, um, again, I love his work so much. I wanted to find what's the common thread. I, and the book is about taking, uh, what after reading and making outlines and trying to keep all the plays in my head, what are, what are the common themes across his body of 30 plays and trying to, summarize the plays with a hint toward toward those themes so it's very much like it's structured somewhat like elegant complexity but it's only going to be 300 pages so there over 30 plays so so i've gotten more efficient um i didn't have i didn't think every single word had to be talked about like in like in infinite jest but um so that and and of course that idea that you can't ever really know somewhere there's this gap you have to come across ended up linking in a couple places to Wallace. So it's, I just find it interesting how you know, there's no commonality between these two at all, really, but I, I just, just because I'm interested in both of them, I I noticed that. But it, yeah, I, if Wallace, I mean, if you are a Wallace fan that, you know, Elegant Complexity helped you and you are you know about Edward Albee, you know about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, or you're an Albee fan, this, this might be something for you. <laughs> well... I mean, uh, uh, one thing that's crazy about it to me is that, um, I don't know, 10 years ago, I never would have thought that, you know, Edward Albee would outlive David Foster. I know. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a lot of kind of writers in that that group. I mean, I would put Updike and David Markson in the same group um, who ended up outliving David Foster Wallace, yeah. um, but but Albie just seems almost from a different like yeah. generation. Absolutely. Um, and but le- yet his later works, uh, it seems much more like culturally, I don't know, relevant than what Wallace was able to produce. He's always well, just very uh, bold. I mean, he's always been like shocking and bold, and he got validated for that in the fifties with the zoo story, and so he can put something like the goat out in two thousand two. So yeah. Well, and I remember you, um, I, I, I asked you a several times for a recommendation for um, plays, and I, I remember you gave me a Ted Talley book. Yeah, Terra Nova is my favorite. Uh, my colleague is getting ready to direct that at my school in October, so I get to see it. Very excited. I love that play. <laughs> Ted Talley was so the screenwriter. He won an Oscar for the adapted screenplay for Science of the Lambs. He went to mm-hmm. school and yeah, he was a Yale playwright with... Uh, Right. Some other famous playwright. It's a total tangent here, but this is just evidence of the fact <laughs> that like, I'm able to I'm able to take almost everything in my life and somehow work it back to David Foster. <laughs> oh, yeah, easy. Uh, Easily. So, so Ted Talley won uh Oscar, as you say, for adapting Silence of the Lambs, the book, Thomas Harris for the screen. Yeah. Um and I think that Wallace drew a lot on Red Dragon yeah, yeah. for mm. Infinite Chess, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, you mentioned this stuff as like his um, description of Gately's gun, right? Yeah. Like it's basically drawn from Red Dragon, although the movie, which Ted Talley adapted, wrote the screenplay, didn't come out until 2002. The book came out in like, what, early 90s, mid-90s? The Science of the Lambs? The Red Dragon. Yeah, well, Red Dragon... Tally adapted Silence of the Lambs. I don't. Did he? He did he do Red Dragon yeah. too? He, he did Red. Oh, Dragon. Oh, I didn't. I did not even know that. 
that makes sense that they would give him that after he did Silence of the Lambs. So that's okay. No, after you mentioned him to me, I, I found him a super interesting guy. And he also adapted Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses that uh, Billy Bob. Oh, Thornton right. Directed. Yeah, I did know that. He right. did that. And he also did um, Shrek 2. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know. I've watched that with my kids all the time. I didn't know that. That's Ted Talley. And he also did a movie called Mission to Mars, which is the only movie I've ever walked out of. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, it was so terrible and bad. And, like, I actually snuck into the movie for free. And then and left. I couldn't even... <laughs> I couldn't even stomach it. I was like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was Ted Talley's script, but it was not his fault. But um, I, This is partly just to say, like, a lot of the people who are working, I think there's interrelation um, between what they're doing. And, like, it doesn't make, it doesn't surprise me totally, like, you would go from theater to infinite jest. Yeah, I, the, there's so much detail that, it's a you know if you got to play those parts like I imagined myself playing Gately like for Note ninety I was like oh I want to like do this on stage the dialogue mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. and I and I described it to somebody once a long time ago but I felt like reading it it's like an act it's like you're reading character like you would read a play and that the character's dialogue is something you just want to get up and speak you know mm-hmm. and uh, so I think it's the kind of book that actors would like but. Um, it's it's enough work just getting them to read plays, <laughs> but I should do like my professor and instead of saying you know read Ulysses say read Infinite Jest. But... Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you ever done any Infinite Jest stuff with your theater students at all? Greg? I I have like not small portions, but that is a like that, that is yeah. a great idea. Uh, yeah, that'd be cool if I can get anyone turned on to it. Yeah. I mean, I know there have been. <laughs> I've some had a couple of students that, have, that are, I've yeah. had a couple of actors turned on to it. Um, mm-hmm. Right as they're graduating, but maybe if I can get some freshmen turned on, we'll build something we can do before. Before mm. they graduate, <laughs> yeah, maybe you can maybe you can do one comparable to that twenty four hour hour play. Oh, I couldn't do that. that but like maybe we can pick ago. a lift a, a heavily dialogue scene. Oh, I could do that for an acting class just for fun. Hey, do this. Uh-huh. Trust me, it's good theater stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and I feel like we could actually go through you know spend an hour going through all of the similarities between Hamlet and Infinite Jest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the parent-child stuff that's going yeah, on. Yeah. And, you know, the... The dead father even, ghost stuff. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, and the graveyard stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, again, Wallace, I don't know, 1988 submitted an application to a residency saying he was working on a novel called Infinite Jest. And in my mind, you can't really have a novel called Infinite Jest without the Hamlet stuff. Oh, yeah. Like... For sure. Like if it's if it's just about recovery or if it's just about tennis, it's not it's not about Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And I think he consciously had this idea very early on. Um, What's well, that sense of I talking? Feel, you you talk and t- you're kind of in your head talking. He even puts that in one of the end notes of Infinite Jest about uh, uh, someone kind of talking in a loop like Hamlet, but it, that sense of isolation, lonely, no one understands me. I'm trying to do revenge on my own or I, I don't, uh, Horatio was his really the only person he could confide in. So yeah, that's sort of how I feel on a podcast. <laughs> and it's mostly driven by revenge. And, um, specifically pointed at pension in public, Matt. 
Uh, no, I, I have no beef with them. But Oh, sure um, you do. I actually uh, went to a production of Hamlet uh, like 10 days ago. Oh. And it was right. in a, a really cool, beautiful church on the top of this oh. hill, but it was absolutely freezing in there because New Zealand has very poor like building standards in terms of insulation and heating and things like that so i I actually at like the two and a half hour halfway point i was like i'm so cold and i and i just couldn't stick it out all the way (laughs) when i when i got to do the show it we were rehearsing in louisville in a church and it was the coldest may ever oh yeah yeah Yeah. it was unbelievable which thematically works really well right but yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, I got to I got to play Claudius and the ghost, so it was great doing the cold oh, wow, and those yeah. ghost scenes. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went to Hamlet like nine days ago, so you know I'm I'm right with you. I'm sure you actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure your listeners now are like, why are we talking? Yeah. About? <laughs> Did we go to Hamlet on the same night, Matt? Then in different parts. No, I was joking. Oh uh, yeah, I was joking. Uh, <laughs> it was it was a bad joke. Uh, but, um, no, I liked it. Uh, so Greg, you're. You're basically done with the Albi book. What What are you most interested in right now? Where's your head at? Oh, um, taking a long break from writing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Sounds really good to uh, me. It's, yeah, that's my life. I want to try to do my regular classroom work and directing plays for school. Getting ready to direct Tartuffe in April. Oh, cool. And, uh, I've read that. I just want to be focused on that and not feel completely stressed and everything. And so... I've had a fun summer getting to direct my daughter and other young, like middle school or high school age kids in a, a forty-minute version of *Midsummer Night's Dream*. Oh, that cool. was unbelievably rewarding. Uh, they did a great job in six days. Whoa. I was so freaking rewarding, uh, and that so that kind of wow. stuff. I just want to be able to kind of and read. I've been able to read a lot. This, I'm like, oh, this has been the summer that I haven't been writing for the first time in years, and that lack of responsibility is. I'm really liking that, but uh, hmm. <laughs> uh, awesome. I've only I've really only taken notes. I would I had an idea of trying to relate the the long comic book Cerebus to uh, other encyclopedic novels like Ulysses, Infinite Jest, uh, The Recognitions. I took a lot of notes on that, but I hmm. that'll be like I'll tinker away at that for twenty years, and then when I'm retired, say, "Hey, <laughs> Matt, are you interested in this?" Uh, so. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's not a very exciting. That's not a very exciting answer for you about what am I working on. But it's in the moment of these working theater classes and directing and reading for pleasure. So that's mm-hmm. actually no, a just, good answer for me. <laughs> that's cool. That is good. I mean, I'm more just interested again. Like, what what are you interested in? And like, what's you know what's working for you? What sounds good? <laughs> So that's good. That answers that. Um, trying to read more. I'm trying to read the Jerusalem, and then I want to. Um, Wallace List has stacked up with recommendations with you know the overstory. It's like I got to read that, and yeah, and the, what's the yeah. the new Sergio de la Pava? Oh, the, the Lost it's like, Empress. Man, I, how that. can I read all these long novels? I got to stack them up and try <laughs> to read them. So that have you, you know, read the instructions, Greg? Oh, who's that? By Adam Levin. I they talked about I, it's on my radar because they I, talked about it on the I list. I haven't read it, uh, but yeah. I have not read that one. I would put it. It's a huge encyclopedic novel. It's bigger than Infinite Jest, uh, like 
as an object. It's a slightly shorter by page count and quite a bit easier to read. Is that but McSweeney? Would, was McSweeney? Yeah, McSweeney's yeah, McSweeney's, McSweeney's yeah. put it out. That's right. I would put it as my second favorite novel after. Really? I, okay. I, I so it's, it's back it. up on my list now. Now there's a so third book funny. I need to read. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Matt Luter read it uh, last summer as part of a, a bet that we had. And he really he really loved it as well. So I felt validated. Dave, have you ever read uh, Roberto Bolaño? Yeah, 2666. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I was, I was uh, turned onto that by Matt. Yeah, I love reading it. It was yeah, so... The onslaught of reporting yeah. the crimes. I'm like, this is, uh, I can, you can see how you get raw and like you end up not treating the crime as this horrible thing because there's just an onslaught of it. And it's like, like two you've got to 300 different mentions of it. Of yeah. You've got to fight it. Yeah. You've got to fight against watching the news. Cause I do, I try not to watch the news cause it's so miserably depressing. And I, it's like, I'd rather have my kids watch it's like it, it's like them watching an R-rated movie or something, and but, you know, but <laughs> it, like but it also makes me hellscape. it makes me insensitive because they report on these things, and I know it's like, um, I don't believe anyone on the news has much empathy for what they're reporting on. They're just kind of reporting for their own sake, and it it just it's drives me crazy, and it, it makes me cynical. So I have to turn the news off, and and that twenty six sixty six. I remember going, oh my god, it's like the two hundredth one. And it's, mm-hmm. I'm starting to think, you know, it's getting monotonous. Oh my God, they're talking about m- murder. You, you can't feel that. It's, that was such a right. great read. That's a it was point. such a great read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, okay. Well, the ad, I mean, the, uh, the book that I've been crazy about lately is called Novel Explosives by Jim, Jim Gower. And you almost done uh, it? we might talk, talk more about that later, but, um, I hope to read that book before uh, the year's out. So you should. Yeah. Uh, I, it's I'm, it's one of those books where I'm like, I want to tell everyone about it, and they should read it. And we'll talk. Say the name about again, it, but, so I can um, look it up after we're done. It's it's novel explosives by Jim novel Gower. G a yeah G a u e r. And um, but Greg, we will link to your books in the show notes and uh, send people your way. Uh, you're not really on Twitter. Are you on academia? What, where can people find out really about your work? Mm-hmm. Facebook. I'm, well, I'm on Facebook. I don't use it very much. Um, <laughs> I would, you can, if you, you know, uh, you maybe you should put my email on there. Cause that's, that's what I'm going to check. And I'm happy to feel, mm-hmm. I guess we didn't get to feeling a lot of specific questions, but I am happy to go cut something from my old manuscript to answer <laughs> whatever question, whatever specific, no question is too arcane. So maybe you just yeah. put that G. Carlisle and Morehead State up there and invite anyone who didn't get their question answered. I will I will engage with anyone about any esoteric oh, that's a, infinite just question. That's a great that, offer. Yeah, I, that's I love, you know, trying to persuade people. You know, <laughs> it's, it's cool. like, if we'll you de- agree we'll with me, then this is great. <laughs> but yeah, that's probably the best. That's what's what I'll read. I mean, you could Facebook is there, but I, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll we'll super link you. Super helpful that way. That's awesome. Um, so that thank you so much for that, um, Greg. And I, you know, I appreciate your your friendship over the years, and your your being in touch about this stuff. And it's kind of crazy that you and I are still talking about this. Book I know. <laughs> a good a good fif- fifteen years later. Yeah. It's a pretty um, good sign when we 
first started talking about it, maybe 16, 17 years. I don't yeah, know. I joined I joined um, the Wallace L in, in 2003. So this year we're 15 straight years of... 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we've been talking about this book a long time. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to transition a little bit. Dave and I have some show business to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean show business. I mean... Yeah, um, business, the business of your so, show. Yeah, yeah. Previous previous stuff about the show. Yeah. Uh Dave, do you want to catch us up on on what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Before we do though, I kind of have like a final a final thought on some of the stuff that we talked about today specifically pertaining to like the politics of of representation and privilege and things like that. Uh when we were talking about that section it reminded me of uh, a tweet that I saw back in April from Madam Psychosis who <laughs> uh is probably like I would say the biggest Wallace personality on Twitter. Um, like she has like almost 7,000 followers and most of her tweets or a lot of them are about infinite jest and wow. anybody who follows like our show will follow her like, like no questions asked. And she retweeted somebody named Mary Boo Anderson with a quote saying, telling men who've clearly read David Foster Wallace to read David Foster Wallace as a power move, <laughs> which is really funny. <laughs> I love lovely. that. I think that's, that's so great. funny. That's funny. And then her response to that, Madam Psychosis responds, and then a beautiful conversation with a stranger about sincerity and loneliness and addiction and the beauty of maximalism ensues. Yes, these are the power moves the world needs. Oh, my God. It's like she's the real Madam Psychosis. That's great. (laughs) That that could have gone on the radio show in the books. Yeah. (laughs) Well, not that that explicit and clear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's like, so yes, there are these political issues about about power and ethnicity and representation that we need to talk about and we want to continue talking about. But like, as we were saying, the heart of the book, the heart of Infinite Jest has to do with these really personal, deep things about what it means to be human. And I love the way that she, she captured that in such a poignant way. So, yeah. And I don't think well we'd, done, well me and done, Matt would be talking about it for 15 years and that it would be still in the popular culture if... Exactly. If that isn't what it was about at heart, mm-hmm. I mean, if it mm-hmm. if it wasn't about that at heart, we wouldn't still be talking about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You you would have to hate my guts to tell me to go read it for the job. It's like that's not just a power move. It's like I fucking hate you. Dude. Oh, totally. It's yeah. Like, like they've really got yeah, your number. Power here. move. Yeah. If someone said you look like the kind of guy that hasn't read David Foster Wallace, yeah, I just faint. Be- Greg Carlisle wrote a 500-page book about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks. That's not just a power move. That's like I hate you so much. I want you to. To die. Yeah, totally. Okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> One of my good friends here in uh, Dunedin, New Zealand, since I've been here, he um, he's a really literary guy. He started reading Infinite Jest about two months ago, and he's been reading it on and off, and he's been uh, filling me in on where he's at every time we hang out. And we were talking this weekend, and he, he came across on like a, a review or some kind of forum about the book, like, has anyone actually ever read this book? It just seems so outlandish that someone would have read it. I, I don't think that person exists. And then someone writing a comment like, oh, yeah, like this book has sold a million copies, but literally no one has ever bought bought it on Kindle. <laughs> the implication, of course, being that you buy it as an object to impress people with. But why would you buy it on Kindle? Because like no one's going to see that, you know, um, Th- that's true. <laughs> but people have read no this book read and it. people love this book and people have a lot to say about it. So. We're, we're, we're here to connect those people. That's part of 
what I sort of see our role as with this doing this show. And it's been it's been good. Um, speaking of people that we've met through the show, uh, as Matt, you were just saying, we offered a contest on our last episode. Uh, we got onto this funny tangent talking about anagrams for for your name. And uh, Matt, yours was uh, you had it locked and loaded. What was it again? Chad Brett Chatham Brick Brett Chatham. Brett Chatham Brett Chatham uh, mine I I searched it was Advil Dare was one that popped out uh, and then we invited listeners to comment their best anagram for their name and we said that we'd offer the this is water water bottle as a prize so I've got a sort Which, of a um, yeah I gotta say the water bottle was donated by uh, a listener Emilio Emilio yes who was at the conference that's so right thank you Emilio. yeah thanks again Emilio so I've got kind of a sort of a top 10 and then we've got a winner so uh, Michael O'Connell who is a guest on episode 17 his anagram is Leon Melancholic it's not bad that's Tim good. Groenland who is a guest on episode 5 and congrats he just had his first Gre- child as well I think it's Greenland Greenland ooh Okay, so somewhere in there. Milton Danger. Rob okay. Rob Short, guest on episode 13 and 17. Throb Roster. That's good. Throb Roster. That's pretty hard to beat. Tim Eastwood has two. Tom Wastoid, which is very Wallacean. And also I'm Too Wasted, which he says he saves for the cops when they show up. <laughs> Uh, our friend Carly Yinkst, Selly Stingray. That involves her middle initial, really so maybe a bit fringe there, Carly, but still pretty great. Uh, Jack Waters, Jerks Caw At. Caw as in like birds. Mm. That's good. Brian Cooper, Cobra Perino, which sounds to me like the best like Miami 1980s private investigator name ever. <laughs> um, Peter John Petto, 10th Jeep Troop. Liam Haltelid as Lilith Mauled, his female alter ego. And then Becky Madison with Snakebite Tom. And uh, Matt and I have talked it over. And, That's... and we think that the punchiest, uh, you know, kind of most badass of those. What do you think it was, Matt? Snakebite Tom. We're going to go with Snakebite Tom. So, Becky, Snake congratulations. You're the winner. Send us uh, the, send uh, us your address uh, to concavityshow at gmail.com. I think I have her oh, address. Okay. Well, don't even need I think I think I do. Cool. If not, Becky, send us uh, your address and we, we will send you the prize. But when I saw Snake by Tom, I was like, boom, that's it. <laughs> that, no, no one's going to top that. Like, it's if you have good. that as your secret identity, <laughs> like, you need to just go create a whole nother identity based on that. Like that Absolutely. Snake by Tom. Yeah. Like, and snake bite just being such a great, like, compound word. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what a great word. Yeah. I, I was blown it's away. It's pretty tight. So, congrats, Becky, on that. Um, so that's the contest sorted. Um, we had one other thing we wanted to mention is something Matt and I have been talking about for quite a while is the idea of whether or not to ever launch something like Patreon, uh, as a way for listeners to sort of, uh, sort of co partner with us to help, uh, continue the show, help to improve it, make it better, um, help cover some of our, our costs as a result of doing the show. Uh, we've really battled back and forth with whether or not to do it or not. We're still kind of, still kind of on the fence. Um, but we're leaning a little bit more close towards launching something like that. And so we want to invite listeners to send us ideas that they might have for certain reward levels, um, for Patreon. So, 
you know, Patreon works like if you donate $1 a month towards the podcast, you will get uh, this as a kind of a reward or prize for, for pitching in. Um, so if you guys have any ideas about things you'd like to see at the reward levels, and they're not going to be very high. I think, Matt, we said like between like $1 to $4 a month or something like that, right? Um, what are some things that you would, would want to see coming back from us from those? So we would love to hear your thoughts and ideas. You can send those to concavityshow at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at concavityshow. Uh, we are on Instagram at Concavity Show, and we're also on Facebook as The Great Concavity. Uh, any last or final thoughts from you, Matt or Greg? Anything we missed before we do our thanks? Until next time, <laughs> thanks for being thanks for being on. Greg. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg, for being on episode forty. Um, Matt, do we now have as many episodes as you have years? Being firmly entrenched in your middle middle age now, or is it forty one? Uh, I'm almost 42. Almost 42. Okay. I'll bring that up in two episodes then again. Uh, as always, thanks to Robin O'Neill for her art, uh, which is the icon for our podcast. She actually did a had a show in Seattle uh, two weekends ago. I was really bummed to be over here in New Zealand, uh, missing out on that. Otherwise, I for sure would have gone and checked that out. And we want to thank Parquet Courts, the band, for letting us use their song Instant Disassembly. Uh, I mentioned last show, Matt, I think that they're doing a show on Van- in Vancouver on Monday, September 24th. I have a ticket. I'm going to be there. If you're also going to be there, hit me up and we'll we'll hang out. We can talk some Wallace and, uh, and see a really good band. So that's all we got. Thanks for listening to episode 40. Greg, thanks so much again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Oh man, Rob's tweet the other day about um, Infinite Jest being a wraith-based salvation system, or Don Gately's story as being <laughs> wraith-based. I love that. That was so good. That was great. That was my favorite. That was great. Yeah. And then his next comment was like ducks, as in like from the incoming <laughs> rotten fruit at the dad joke. <laughs> yes, loved it. Yeah, that was good. <laughs>